you are an explorer and you represent our species. And the greatest good you can do is bring back a new idea because our world is endangered by the absence of good ideas. Our world is in crisis because of the absence of consciousness. Without consciousness, we must embrace the void. was ever going to make it back from the void, I suppose it was going to be you. Oh, well, you know, one man's void is another man's piece of cake. What about the reality we left behind? What about the reality where Hitler cured cancer, Morty? The answer is don't think about it. People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like they're people. Welcome, friends, to episode 228 of Embrace the Void, where we're going to show you the life of the mind. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we are talking consciousness. So let's get pea zombified. Life ends in death, which we as a species are cursed with knowing, resulting in something. My guest this week is Jack Symes, co host of the Pan SciCast podcast and editor of the new book in the Talking About Philosophy series entitled Philosophers on Consciousness. Jack, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello, Void. And hello, Aaron. <laughs> hey, it's really great to finally have you on. You know, we've interacted some through various mutual podcasty philosophy channels, and I'm excited to have a chat about your new book. Before we get into the book, do you want to tell folks a little bit about your background and what particular sins you committed that landed you <laughs> in the job of a uh, philosophy podcast host? Yeah, cool. That's a really good question to to kick off with. I guess... I've just been interested in philosophy for a long time now. No surprise because I'm like producing the PanPsychast and doing books in it. So it's kind of handy to be actually interested in the topics. I fell in love with philosophy in the form of a sixth form class when I was like 16, 17, after not caring about uh, studying at all and just fell in love with the topics, the big questions, how it all <laughs> hangs together and just been uh -huh. obsessed with it since. So, yeah, and the, the podcast, and I know you're an avid listener yourself, Aaron, uh, is hopefully striking a nice balance between being informal and entertaining, but uh, hopefully entertaining, as well as bringing people along on, on that journey uh, with myself, uh, Andrew uh -huh. Horton and Ali, Ali Marley, yeah. Yeah, it's a really great show, and y'all's banter is quite good, and <laughs> the topics you cover are excellent and really good, sort of in-depth stuff. I really like the uh, Flowers for Al Algernon. Is that the correct pronunciation, yeah. right? Oh, cool. I, I love Algernon. that series as well. It's probably my favorite of the Yeah, well, I mean, I have the Philosophers in Space podcast as well, so, like, I particularly love when philosophers get into some, some good sci-fi. Yeah. Are there, so in your description there, were there particular, like, hard philosophical questions that first sparked you on that kind of journey? Suppose so. Yeah, I was mainly interested in, in metaphysics, origin of the universe type stuff. Mm -hmm. Everyone gets hooked in with the 
a question of whether or not this is all a simulation and whether a reality is as it seems. I taught in a, in a secondary school for quite a while and the students are always hooked by that question. And to start plugging the book right from the get-go here, Aaron, <laughs> that's a question that runs through Philosophers on Consciousness as well. Like, what is the fabric of reality? So that's something that's never quite left my, left my mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so let's talk about the book here, right? You've done <laughs> and you've gone the route that seems to be increasingly common, but I'm a big fan of, which is, mm. you know, a philosophy book that's kind of like, you know, Socratic dialogues in a sense, based on sort of enhanced transcripts from conversations um, from the show. I had Toby Buckle mm. on doing sort of a similar thing uh, recently. And yeah. I really like this as a format because I think you know, it makes for a very accessible text for non-philosophers. And I think, you know, your book in particular would be like having read through it, I would say it's a good central text for like an intro to philosophy kind oh, of great. course, because you do this very nice, like not only are you having a dialogue in each chapter with these individuals, but mm. the overall arc of the book is, a you know, is a clear sort of back and forth dialogue between these uh, different main positions. Now, you know, I'm curious, just a little bit of background from a, like editing perspective, I've also edited books and like, what was your experience with compiling this text? Do you feel like this kind of format is an easier format from an editing perspective or were there like particular challenges that you didn't anticipate going in? Well, I think start right from the end there. The mm -hmm. Challenges I saw going into it were, the main one was working alongside 12 prominent philosophers of mind. And I've worked with philosophers quite a bit. And I know they can be really pernickety about uh, like the phrasing of individual sentences. And sometimes they lean towards accuracy over engagement. And the, the I guess, boring your reader to death mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. uh, maybe good philosophy, but it's not great for getting the general public involved <laughs> in the discussions. So I was a little bit worried about that. But in reality, what I found was all of the book's contributors, uh, people like Frank Jackson, Susan Blackmore, and, and David Chalmers, and, and so on, these people were really keen and happy to take on board feedback, to add a few silly jokes in there, make it engaging there, and paint with really big, broad brushstrokes, but think about those brushstrokes carefully. And I think that's a unique thing, in, in certainly in, in philosophy books that are out there. Usually they're quite petty mm -hmm. and small and little issues. Now... Mm -hmm. I suppose I like your reflection on it's good to have a type of platonic dialogue in, in the text. And personally, I find that a really engaging way. The book's a mixture of essays and those remastered interviews. And even mm -hmm. the essays, we're trying to tailor it, being entertaining, engaging, and, and being accessible and informative as well. Mm -hmm. Now, one, one in, really interesting thing I found when putting the book together is as you know from having these conversations on your own podcast and as your listeners and my listeners and stuff will be aware is that when you're doing a podcast it doesn't matter if you say something that's wrong you're having a conversation no one mm -hmm. has the type of omniscience and foresight to nail everything in the way they want to say it unless it's right. perfectly it's scripted. Editors are yeah <laughs> and so and the same in the classroom and stuff right we we find ourselves just riffing on these points or in the pub or in conversation with friends now, the interesting thing about the book and remastering these interviews is here's an opportunity to, to have the platonic form of a conversation, right? Mm -hmm. How can I say that in the most, in the best way possible whilst keeping the in, in conversation engaging? And so right. I thought that was, a, that was a real fun challenge. And as a bit of a perfectionist, it, it consumed me 
that task and hopefully the the book accomplishes that goal but I'm, I'm really glad you you enjoyed it how did it compare to to toby buckles book out of interest <laughs> they're, they're different uh, they, they sort of have a different slightly different approach to them i think I haven't seen yours, yours, his conversations as well did you say yeah it is also conversations and they are also quite accessible i think there's a little bit of a difference in terms of like there was kind of a framing and the, the essays that you bring up about your book i think um are part of it you know, your book not just gives an arc back and forth between Chalmers and Dennett and these folks, but like it also gives a narrative of your own experience as the sort of, and, and this is funny because thinking about like the platonic dialogues, right? You mm. you sort of wonder how much is Plato in those dialogues doing his own like <laughs> that thing, but like you do it at least explicitly, like you're explicitly in the book at various points, like I kind of feel this way about this thing and this doesn't really do it for me. And then like the final chapter is you collaborating with someone as I get the impression to sort of give your perspective on this mm. whole thing. So I like that. And I think, I think philosophers should do more of that, like putting themselves there as part of that kind of dialogue. So I, I you know, I liked that framing. Um, and, and so that lead, that led me into thinking that like the way that I really want to have this conversation is about your own personal kind of journey around this particular question and these issues and in doing so we can kind of unpack some of the the major questions so so that's that is to say enough softballs uh let's have some fun um first and foremost right a big question throughout this book is you know what is the hard problem yeah. are we making progress on the hard problem of consciousness and is that even the right way to frame this particular issue so where are you on that Okay, cool. So what I will say just before answering the question, yeah. um, more on the approach of the, the book or philosophy more generally, is that I like that you've taken that, that you think of putting this, this view forward and the comparison uh, between like a Socratic dialogue. I, I, I'm happy to say like on the record, I don't really have a, a view on in terms of uh, mm. the, what the solution to the hard problem, the most promising solution is and those afterthoughts and commentaries in that co-author chapter with Miri Al-Bahari is, isn't intended well let me put it it's it's supposed to be provocative right it's supposed mm -hmm. to end the book on this here's this great big idea and I'm sure we'll touch on the actual idea later on um, which is controversial and should keep you thinking afterwards it's more of a pedagogical technique to be like right here's here's some thoughts to get you thinking here are some thoughts which uh, should push the push the right buttons but i suppose i'm quite agnostic on most of the book's content in reality so the book itself focuses as you say on the hard problem of consciousness hard problem as david chalmers captures it in a couple of words is explain consciousness so listeners who haven't came across it before what is consciousness well when the images come into the webcam and your your computer takes on board this data or when the sounds go into your computer's microphone or when you drum the keys on your computer's keyboards it doesn't see the images it doesn't hear the sounds that come through its microphone and it certainly doesn't feel the drumming of the keys of the keyboard but when images come through our webcams when sounds come through our microphones and when people drum our keyboards bad analogy is that we feel them we experience them so why doesn't all of our brain processing go on in the dark like our computers mm -hmm. uh, processing in, in, in its hardware? It's how does all of this uh, soggy gray matter give rise to technical learning experience? Mm -hmm. Why is there something it's like 
to be us. So that's the mm-hmm. ultimately the question the book goes out to address. Do I think we're making progress with it? No, you're pushing me. <laughs> Thanks for the softball so far. Um, <laughs> I suppose, yeah, like I'd be interested to know what people mean by progress. And, and Massimo Pellucci, and he does a brilliant chapter in the book, and he's so good at public philosophy, isn't he? And he, he, he really, uh, he, it, it's so vibrant with criticisms and, and philosophy more generally in terms of how we should approach it. He's probably the more qualified person to ask him this question. But if pushed, I'd say, okay, here's one way it clearly does make progress. Say I'm organizing a party, and you say, how are you getting on with organizing the party? I go, well, I've kind of mapped out all of the possible ways we could approach the party. We could email 100 people from the office. We could say it's a work event. We could make jokes about it, and they could get leaked to the, the public. We could even hold it during lockdown. And you'd say, ah, oh, so you have, like, at least you've ruled out some <laughs> ways. Like, at least you've given <clears throat> us some ways how we definitely, what we definitely shouldn't do. And so, yeah, like, I know you, maybe you, are you you a fan of um, is it mysterianism or are you a mysterian in a sense, Aaron? You you don't think that yeah. we can ever explain consciousness? Well, so I don't want to say ever, right? My mysterianism is probably a present tense kind of thing, where it's like I believe there is a hard problem, and I believe right. that I don't have the answer to it, and I don't believe that anybody else has the answer to it yet either. Um, and so to me, the Mysterian position, um, and maybe we can talk about this a little bit more down the line, like, I thought it was interesting there isn't like a Mysterian chapter in the book the way there is mm. like an illusionist chapter and such, right? Um, but so, so let me let me actually dodge this for a second by going back and answering your question about progress, right? Like, yeah. what does it mean to make progress on the hard problem? Well, one person, you know, one argument would be progress means realizing there isn't a hard problem, right? It means dissolving right. the hard problem as a conceptual incoherence or something like that. Um, and several, I think, folks in your book take sort of that kind of approach to solving it. Um, to, you know, to give a concrete example, Patricia Churchland, I think, at one point in the book compares the hard problem to the what you know to vitalism right the idea that like there is this life force or to the hard problem of dna replication for example mm-hmm. um now i i find this kind of an uncom- uh, an uncompelling comparison personally but i'm curious you know do you think that that is a good way to understand the hard problem as a kind of um philosophical confusion that will be untangled without scientific advancements yeah, it's really interesting. I, I think a lot of people, when they discuss Pat Churchland's view, get it wrong. And I think you've captured it quite nicely. I'll just give a quote from the book where she makes herself really clear. She says, I'm claiming only that a scientific approach has a better shot at it than armchair philosophy. I think a lot of people straw man Pat's view and say she just thinks all we need is more physical science. I think she just wants a combination of these and she wants the hypothesis to be to be testable so yeah mm-hmm. she she does make that comparison doesn't she between the hard and easy problem of dna how to how does information get passed along how do proteins fold and vitalism can we just get life from from chemicals uh, for, mm-hmm. alone and physical force i'm i'm not sure again i i think if i was it's down to the historical perspective and i think again that's a big point of her chapter where are we in the history of science? And if I was a, I'd find the question of how life 
comes about still perplexing just because it goes above my pay grade i don't think i quite understand how physical matter gives rise to life uh, from a personally speaking so i see the attraction with with that one a little bit but uh, if i asked Mm -hmm. a a biologist or a physicist i'm sure they could give me a purely physical explanation so i guess what what's my view on it do i find it compelling yeah, personally, I probably find that the force of Chalmers's distinction, or the distinction between easy and hard problems, um, compelling. There seems to be a a conceptual difference that mm-hmm. it, it just it, think about Goff's chapter and people who are aware mm-hmm. of his work, Galileo's era. We took consciousness now out of the picture, so how do we expect to be able to analyze consciousness when the first step in science is Galileo is to take it out of there? Yeah. All right. Um. Yeah, and so like I'm, I'm sympathetic to this view as well because of my understanding of the subjective-objective divide, which is I think what you're sort of getting at here is that like any problem that's objective to objective, like how do you reduce biology down to chemistry, mm. is it to me it seems like a fundamentally different problem, and how do you bridge the gap between the subjective and the objective, if you acknowledge that the objective and that the subjective exists, right? Like, and that's why I think some folks take the approach of basically denying that there is a subjective as a way to sort of dissolve the distinction. But I think if there is a subjective, it presents a uniquely hard problem for science in a way that like DNA replication just never could. Yeah. I wonder if there's people in the book who Mm -hmm. would agree with the characterization of denying the subjective per se the maybe well i know i know my good friend keith would not necessarily agree with it but i think if you take their view as a strong as like a like a position that doesn't collapse into a realist position this is going very deep in the weeds too quickly which i apologize to listeners but go back and listen to my interview with keith where i think if you buy strong illusionism as a position as presented it does have to say that like there's no there's no something it's like to be you right that's what they are rejecting it seems to me otherwise they're just saying that like we have a fallible access to our subjective which doesn't solve the hard problem it seems like Like maybe can't he but can't he say that there is something it's like to be you it's not just it's just not what you think it is it's the it's the illusion of this this qualia of this uh this theater decked out with phenomenal properties like he doesn't just keep really deny that you don't okay. think you feel pain yeah so I, I apologize folks um should go read his his paper <laughs> which you cite in the book actually as like the advanced text one of the one of the other things i think is really great about your book is that you give questions at different levels at the end of yeah. the chapters and different resources at different levels and like philosophy is all about pitching to the level of the person you're engaging with mm. um but like here's my you know advanced level answer to this question i read his paper and he says there's strong illusionism and there's weak illusionism mm-hmm. weak illusionism is fundamentally just the same as weak realism it says we have you know some sort of subjective experience but we don't really know exactly how it works or what it's like it's opaque to us and its processes and like we may be wrong about its nature in various kinds of ways Mm. strong illusionism he says at various points in that paper is a denial of basically what it's likeness that like Mm -hmm. you know what what really is ultimately happening as i understand illusionism is your mental processes are really just a disposition to 
you know, respond certain ways to certain kinds of things and certain kinds of questions about what your internal mental states are and have a, a strong illusion that you are actually describing what's going on inside of your heads when you really aren't. And if you take that when you really aren't seriously, then I think you have to say that they're denying the what it's likeness that raises the hard problem. And I think I think that's an untenable position for all the reasons that Chalmers puts forward. Okay, that's okay. You've explained that that really, really well, and and I think I don't think Keith would uh, disagree with the characterization of of that either. Just a few points which we've brought up there. I suppose the a, a big part of the book, or what I think public philosophy more generally, or philosophy in teaching should be doing, is just differentiation. Right? It should be appealing to different groups. Uh, and bringing everyone, as many people as possible, along with it. And you can do this in a classroom. Right? You can go up to a student, have a one-to-one conversation with them, and make sure they understand the ideas when they look at you in a really confused way. You can give them some extra resources. So one of the things with the book is inserting these info boxes of concepts and people who perhaps not everyone's familiar with. Or, like I say, I'm glad you like the, the differentiated questions and the readings. There's like 76 or so recommended readings in there, like advanced, intermediate, beginner. Just so no matter where you are, whether you're like at forefront of the field and you haven't looked at like what Jackson thinks of the knowledge argument like as of the last couple of years, or whether you've mm-hmm. never came across consciousness before, hopefully there's something in there. For everyone, the, your question earlier about, or your point, perhaps better put, or criticism, if you don't mind me using such a, a strong <laughs> language, Aaron, is that there's not a chapter on Mysterianism itself. I suppose there there are a lot of things which the book didn't end up including. Um, so we like originally we had a chapter by Lilia Lanen, who unfortunately passed away uh, last year, who was writing a chapter on. Descartes, which wasn't included, or Hedda Hassel-Merck on integrated information theory. There was, there was lots of things which we wanted to include, but are somewhat restricted in making sure it hits the right length and, hit, and hits the right notes. Mm-hmm. And Mysterianism, I thought, I mean, <laughs> the, with, the, with the stuff that's in there, there's clashes, aren't there? Like from the get-go, hopefully when you're reading it, you see that Pat mm-hmm. Churchland is calls like gospel, like pancrapism and crazy and says the same about <laughs> Strawson's yeah. and Dennett yeah. and Strawson, like Strawson saying he's got the silliest idea that's ever been held. Like mm-hmm. the, and Massimo Pellucci again, like just taking down all of a priori, like armchair <laughs> metaphysics. Like yeah. that, that's really good. And I, I, perhaps you can enlighten me on this. I did, I just didn't perhaps see Mysterianism as a, uh-huh. As as of it, it just feels like giving up, doesn't it? The Mysterians' view. They well, just, yeah. So, oh, I mean, that's, we can't yeah. solve it. Just just forget it. And I I don't want people to throw their hands up and go, oh, like maybe we'll never get the answer. Because so many students <laughs> do that in my philosophy classes. They go, oh, just just give it a rest. Why why are you here? <laughs> so so maybe I can distinguish between like a soft Mysterianism and a hard Mysterianism, right? Yeah. Where like I don't think we can. I don't necessarily know that we can never solve the hard problem, right? I don't know what it looks like to make progress on it necessarily. And I'm Mm. not sure that we have a good direction. And I I think like that is actually impacting our study of things like artificial intelligence. Um, And, and then there's like a soft version of this, which is like I was saying earlier, where it's just, it's a rejection of the attempts to dissolve the hard problem to reduce it down. And some, you know, it's a persistence in saying you don't have it yet. Like you haven't got it. Right. Mm. And like, I think there is a value 
to that that is different than just saying we should now give up. It's saying we should keep going because we haven't got it yet, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, and I know like, I, um, uh, may maybe a part of the reason is that like the the one of the lead Mysterian folks would be Thomas Nagel, right? Like mm -hmm. he doesn't really give interviews for the most part, um, and you know, so you don't have that kind of material to draw on for a chapter. And you did have sort of references to him in the book that I think yeah. did at various points sort of. So, so like, I love his characterization of it as trusting the question more than the answers, right? This idea that like, you haven't, like, there's no reason to settle on one of these answers and think that it has mm -hmm. actually sort of solved the question. Um, now, you know, maybe we can say a little bit like, what are the potential strengths of a position like that? Um, you know, like, I think it prevents us from closing off certain lines of thinking by, by sort of adopting, you know, the view that like, we should all think that, um, uh, illusionism is the default position until somebody says otherwise. Mm. Yeah. I, have you ever invited Nagel onto, to, uh, the void? I did send him an email and he was very, he responded almost immediately, was incredibly gracious and said that he just prefers not to do interviews. And yeah, yeah he seems well, like I, a total I, dude. I tried to get him on the pan side cast and, and contribute to the book as well. And uh, it, similar response, but he's, um, mm -hmm. he can't not speak about Nick, right? Which just speaks about, it speaks of his impact in the field. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. we refer to him as the Batman in the book he's, he's mysterious <laughs> and he's uh mm -hmm. he's too busy fighting crime in new york he's, he lives in new york doesn't he he's mm -hmm, not mm -hmm. gotham batman isn't it? that's thinking of spider-man anyway um i think yeah if, if the mysterians view is just well we just haven't got it yet then i i, I don't think many people are gonna uh, have m many qualms with that even those that label themselves illusionists and panpsychists and and those that try and deflate the hard problem. I, I doubt anyone in the book is 100% sure they have the correct answer. To sometimes like Dennett might seem like he's completely <laughs> convinced by yeah. it. And sometimes Strawson has a obviously a, a damning uh, a review of, of the Illusionism Research Project. Right. But really, do, do they think they have all the answers? Perhaps not. And any which say they do in the book at least mm -hmm. are doing it again for that rhetorical pedagogical effect of well if i tell you this is right then you're more likely to react to, to what i'm saying and start engaging with the problem and, and my thoughts and my view uh -huh. and if, if you want to know the the limitations of it in a purely academic philosophical treatise then the recommended readings down there but you know this this is the cool place this isn't the place where we right. like it is, this isn't the academic essay, right? This is the conversation mm -hmm. with like a yeah. lean philosopher, but casually. So speaking of, let's do some more cool pop culture, sunglasses, flip kick philosophy. Um, you know, <laughs> philosophy of mind, I think like ethics benefits from having fun thought experiments, right? Yeah. Like it has easy to hook people in kind of thought experiments of various sorts. So I'm curious from your perspective, are there certain philosophy of mind thought experiments that really get you going and like, where do they nudge your intuitions about these kinds of questions? Well, so the question of what, like what's the purpose of the thought experiment, right? If it's to pump mm -hmm. an intuition to guide you towards a particular view, I think Greg Miller's in the opening chapter of this book, just, just nails it. Like it's so what he's so obviously right. I think when, he does a variation of Robert Nozick's experience machine and says, in the same laboratory, 
they come up with this zombie implant chip that turns you from a conscious human being to like a, a zombie, a computer mm-hmm. just processing all this information. But all of your brain processing goes on in the dark. He says, look, now the world is stripped of meaning. It's just squiggles and uh, sound waves and jokes aren't funny and life isn't meaningful. And it, it's, it's quite apocalyptic. And for a lot of people, I think for the average reader, someone who particularly hasn't done a course in philosophy of mind, they might think, you know, what's the point of like studying consciousness? And if uh, the boys at the partially examined life don't me th- mind me throwing uh, one of their own under the bus, uh, Seth Baskin, <laughs> I remember listening to a show once and he just, they've just finished like a series on, I think they had Ned Block on the show. They had Greg on the show as well. Greg Miller talking about consciousness. I think Seth Baskin had a response that a lot of people do philosophy of mind. Like, what's the practical benefit of this what's the point in it like why does this matter and i think mm-hmm. greg just just answers that um perfectly i, I can't think of a reason why we should think he's wrong in terms of why we should care about the topic outside of that mm-hmm. outside of the book more generally as well we did a a, a podcast episode on the pan about the book on, on our return for episode 101 and just off the top of our heads we came up with one which was Okay, there's two possible worlds, and in one world it's let's call it World A because it's full of boring physicalists and they're not very creative at naming their world. <laughs> and there, consciousness is an illusion, right? Mm-hmm. World of Frankish and Dennett. And then in super awesome cool world B, it's a panpsychist universe where consciousness is a pervasive and ubiquitous feature of the cosmos, and there everything is alive with consciousness. Which world would you rather live in? And the intuition is supposed to be that the second world has is more valuable. It has this special property running uh-huh. through it. Uh-huh. And maybe that's got moral implications and so on too. And that's more of one just to get you thinking about the like how should we live our lives if illusionism or if panpsychism is true. Any any thoughts on this one, Aaron? Where do you want to go well, out of world A and super awesome world B? I, mean, I think it's fat. I mean, obviously, as a as an anti illusionist, I you know I'm sympathetic to these thought experiments. But it's interesting to me that you picked two thought experiments that, to me, seem to cut seem to be sort of uncharitable to the illusionist position. And I can, in my head, hear Dennett and Frankish saying, "Well, look, you can't tell the difference between these two worlds from the inside because yeah. if you're if you're a proper illusionist, you think that like you can't tell that it's an illusion in the sense that there isn't you know you think you're having those experiences. You report that you're having them. There's no real difference on their view that whether you're you know between these two universes in this kind Mm -hmm. of sense um so do you feel like that's still a those are still fair thought experiments or do you feel like maybe you're sort of stacking the deck a little bit against the illusionists when you whip out those thought experiments as opposed to some alternative well i think the i think they're both different Uh, Uh the first the first one i think the illusionist can be happy with like if you don't have the illusion of consciousness is that better than a world where you don't have the illusion of consciousness i think we'd rather have the illusion that we're conscious than than not have it than simply everything goes on in the dark and it doesn't feel to us like we have this inner world but yeah, I guess then I, oh, okay, so then it doesn't feel like it's an objection to illusionism because the yeah. illusionist would say you're not experiencing the world in the dark. So you're imagining like a worse scenario where the pill like turns you empty on the inside, not in an illusionist kind of way, but in like, yeah. you know, the way that they pretend that they're not arguing for, um, that I accuse them of subtly arguing for, <laughs> right? And then the in other that one world, is then, then we're like, that's. What right, but yeah, but so okay, so yeah, then I think you're right that like that is a very strong like 
you know, if you imagine a world where everybody is going about acting as if they are happy, but none of them are experiencing happiness internally, like we see a big problem there, it seems like. Um, so does that incline you then at least towards the more like panpsychist? You you want to believe the world has a bunch of fun consciousness uh, thingies in it? Yeah, which one? It raises the question of which one you'd prefer to be true. If in the world it was just knowledge in world A that illusionism was true and everyone knew consciousness was an illusion and that was a true fact about the world, or would you rather the world be true according to panpsychism? Okay. I'm, again, a, a little bit agnostic as to this. I do think consciousness is a maybe bottoms out moral value that the things that matter to us morally are things which are conscious again there's another great thought experiment in the book where david chalmers uses the vulcan trolley problem and says well it's obviously preferable to save one conscious human being over five zombies zombies which just have no consciousness at all but what about one conscious human being and five vulcans these uh, these Star mm -hmm. Trek-esque figures which have conscious experiences, but they don't have pleasure, pain, happiness, suffering attached to that consciousness or as part of their conscious experiences. And so that raises a really interesting question for people like Peter Singer, who's um, putting together a chapter for our third book on philosophers on how to live, as to whether you should be a hedonistic utilitarian that just cares about happiness, pleasure, pain, and suffering, or whether you should care about preferences, and because that would include entities mm -hmm. such as the Vulcans, perhaps. So maybe mm -hmm. dodging your question a little bit here, Aaron, but uh, I suppose what if you were going to push me, if I had to pick a world, I'd go and live in world B. It's got a much better name for a start. It's all in the marketing. Yeah, that's fair. So this also, I think, you know, it raises an interesting kind of side question here, which is... You know what is the moral value of potentially of non-sentient entities right we got, we're all kind of working with this assumption that like i get this a lot especially when i talk to like atheists and skeptics about ethics like if they think there is ethics at all they think it's ethics of sentient beings like what happens to them what's good or bad for them um you know and i i do think like a lot of ethics is about sentient beings at the same time i don't love to fully close the door on the idea that non-sentient beings couldn't matter ethically separate from how they matter to a sentient being at some point in time i just worry about it a little bit is like it doesn't seem quite true to me all the way and i'm curious where you do you feel like you have an intuition about that and does that play into your thoughts about things like panpsychism so are you saying that you do think non-sentient yeah. creatures matter to give me an example of a so yeah so let's say for example that we don't think that trees are sentient let's say that sentience yeah. you know begins with more sophisticated life forms than that right and let's imagine there's a, a pocket universe of like a pristine wilderness that is never going to be experienced by sentient beings in any way they're never going to go there or see it take pleasure from its beauty etc cetera, etc cetera. Is it okay to dump a bunch of toxic waste through a portal into that universe <laughs> that no one will ever have experienced or seen and no one will suffer from it? Or is there something fundamentally wrong with destroying that pristine pocket universe? Okay, that's a really cool question. So, oh, thanks. <laughs> I suppose that if you were going to push me again, I'd say I don't have this like Aristotelian view of plants and not realizing the ends and the thoughting of ends being bad. I do think that you have to be aware or experience the the pain or the suffering for it to to be bad for to put it really really simply, and so 
I have some plants on on my on my desk here in front of me. Some of them not are doing as well as perhaps they should. And Goff says in his chapter, he's got this Madagascan and this Madagascar tree, and he's worried. He's called it Susie or something like that. And he says <laughs> when he's not in the office, he worries that Susie's suffering because he's not watering it enough. And in reality, this tree is absolutely huge; like it doesn't even fit in his office anymore. So he obviously really thinks that <laughs> this tree uh-huh. can suffer. Now, I look at the plants which aren't doing too well on my desk, and I think, yeah, like that's probably a reflection on how put together I am and how unprepared I am to bring any form of life which can experience suffering into the world. But if if, uh, if panpsychism's not true, perhaps, then I don't cause as much suffering and or do something that's morally wrong. So throw the toxic waste into the place with no conscious creatures. I think perhaps maybe as a last thought on this, there might mm-hmm. be a confusion between great making properties and what we consider to be things that are morally valuable. And I spoke to, mm-hmm. you mentioned Toby Buckle earlier when his political philosophy podcast. And of course, he started wanting to yabber on about moral <laughs> philosophy and political philosophers, <laughs> as he so often does, which again yeah. is above my pay grade. But we're talking about whether or not something which is, is more powerful than it is weak or whether something is more intelligent than it is stupid, are they properties that make things greater on the grand scale of being that make them great and is that equivalent to it having moral value so yeah Mm -hmm. i think there are some pretty cool things about plants and artworks and beautiful landscapes and i but i think ethically why they matter is because they matter to conscious creatures Mm -hmm. fair enough and i just want to mention real quick i should have said this at the beginning like we're we're covering a lot of like panpsychism illusions and other things we're not defining all of them you know, you should go read the book. I, we, I mean, we have early episodes on it. And the problem is that, like, we, we couldn't get to some of these more fun questions, I feel like, if I made you just define basic terms for the whole time. So I apologize to folks. You know, go check out, go Google our episodes on panpsychism. Go Google y'all's episodes. I'm sure you have many of them on the subject, right? Like, um, I also want to say it's funny to me that you think that ethics is above your pay grade when I considered ethics personally as an ethicist to be the lowest pay grade of all the philosophies. <laughs> it's the it's like the sports. Uh, it's like the PE of philosophy in my mind um so but, but what you're bringing up there let, let's let's go with this idea for a second that there is a meaningful moral difference between conscious beings and non-conscious beings mm-hmm. which i think is a strong intuition that almost every human being i know holds yeah. right um this immediately then runs right into another problem which is the testing of consciousness right you have a great running gag throughout the book where i think in several of the chapters people either Chalmers himself or other folks obliquely reference this event where at you know Chalmers was like running around brandishing a hairdryer at people as a like abject lesson in the absurdity of building a machine that contests for consciousness, which is a wonderful example because like I do think that this is kind of it is a fundamentally absurd idea um, in a sense, but it also is a really, really important question, which is mm-hmm. like if morality hangs on consciousness. And do we have a test for consciousness? Um, and what is that test going to look like? Do you think that we can develop that kind of test? And actually, like, I'm curious, do you think the answer might be different for humans versus non-humans? Oh, cool. Uh, so I, I like the example of Chalmers and the hairdryer, which he stole from the hotel bathroom. And originally, there was a fair few more jokes at Chalmers' expense in the book, but we definitely cut them down to hopefully hit the golden mean. So yeah, he, right. he's at one of the first uh, towards a new science of consciousness conference, isn't he? Yeah, if you coin the word the... hard problem, people are going to give you some shit for a while, I think. <laughs> so he's running around with his hairdryer and he runs up to like 
Pat Church, and it's like searching for the consciousness, searching for consciousness, and like, there's a little <laughs> flicker goes to Dennett, and there's like nothing, and he says like he must be a zombie, and it's, that's so good. Um, oh, it's vicious. Yeah, and he says in his chapter, uh, to be fair, like we do have some kind of consciousness meters already, so you might scan someone's brain when they're undergoing experience of perhaps like eating a banana or you know listening to this podcast, and hopefully when you scan their brains, you see that the uh, neurons for experiencing pleasure and happiness are firing and and so when the person reports having that experience you see the brain light up in that particular way and you find what they call the neural correlates of consciousness so perhaps if we map them out in such a way which is incredibly detailed and thorough and obviously it will take a very long time to do so then when you scan someone's brain and it scans in such a way then it's a reasonable inference to think they're probably having that mm -hmm. experience problem of mm -hmm. the minds aside pro problem of what is it like to be another person or a bat aside right uh, it's so yeah i think obviously i think that's uh, conceptually possible and, and, and mm -hmm. hopefully something which is developed in in good detail but do i think there's going to be like uh, a, a thing that can sense non-physical if panpsychism is true or if substance dualism is true and we have these like cartesian souls as perhaps mm -hmm. the majority of the world believe as the majority is it nearly 90 percent believe in a in a soul in the world because of Pro major probably world religions? Yeah, can can we find soul detectors no, mm. i don't think so i think that it's not within the the properties of being a soul that it can be detected by a by tools and equipment other non-human animals yeah, it raises a an interesting question, doesn't it? Because you can't communicate with like a, a a human being with language, even like people like people or gorillas like Coco and, and stuff like that. We don't typically think that they can actually communicate their their inner world with us. So it's gonna be hard to to And you can't necessarily out. do like a one to one correlates thing, right? So like yeah. this is why I think the human one is like maybe we can one day prove that it like a comatose human is still conscious or something, for example, uh -huh. right? We can say they're, this part of their brain is still firing, even if they're not, you know, responding with external behavior or something like that. We still have good reason to think they're conscious inside of there, right? Mm -hmm. And then it gets much harder as soon as you move to a brain that isn't a human brain that has different kinds of core. Maybe, like maybe we feel like very close primate ancestors you know like this part of their brain is relatively similar to that part and so we have good reason to think but like it's not going to help you with fish it's not going to help you with plants right it's not going to help you with electrons or something like that right as soon as you get outside of that very small kind of evolutionary pathway it seems like yeah i wonder if we can have like a rough version though mm -hmm. I, I recently read mary Mitchley's uh, what animals and why they matter and she talks in there about how when we're training or working with non-human animals, the basic intuition or what we typically think before we go do any philosophy is that they do experience these things. When I, when I hit the horse, when I kick the dog, like I know that it's causing a conscious experience to happen in, in that creature. So when I scan the dog and I stamp on its foot, I'll see some of its brain light up and when i give it a treat and say you're a good boy or a good girl and i mean it, what's your what's your dog called again aaron it's voltaire voltaire yeah, speaking of <laughs> so yes. when i so when i give voltaire some fuss and say you're a good dog brain lights up in a certain way mm -hmm. like that's the that's the state that correlates to 
having its belly rubbed on this particular day in this particular place, etc. So maybe it's not going to be as thorough and we can't give these rich descriptions of it, but Mm-hmm. It'll it'll get us somewhere along the line. I don't really need a machine to know that my that Voltaire is conscious because he's the best puppy ever, and a conscious puppy is better than a not conscious puppy. So there we go. It's a simple, will be simple a priori inference there, right? <laughs> um, yeah. So let me. Uh, we're running a little short on time here, but I do want to ask a little bit about you know potential concerns for the panpsychist side of things. I feel like we've mm. you know we've raised various critiques of the illusionist view, um, but like. As I understand it, sort of the main concern with panpsychism is a kind of combination problem where it's like, how do these little consciousnesses, because for a few folks who are not familiar, just very quickly, right? The most common version of this is like consciousness exists even at like an electron level. Um, and then it somehow comes together and combines to create our consciousness in some way. Um, now, I'm not as sympathetic to that version as I am to like a related concern that if we buy the panpsychist claim that electrons are conscious, but not in the way that we're conscious, mm-hmm. which I think they do have to claim, um, that doesn't really seem like, like it solves the emergence problem, maybe, but it doesn't, it sort of implies a new hard problem where, you know, we have to ask why is our consciousness end up being so different than the electrons? Um, and like, what if anything can we know about electron consciousness uh, versus our own. So like, what are your thoughts first about that concern? And then I have sort of a secondary concern as well. Yeah, I think it's a, a big concern for the materialist panpsychist. I, I think it's underplayed perhaps by Strawson and, and Goff somewhat in the book. But again, there's lots of recommended readings. And I think uh, Frankish and Pilucci both uh, raise the problem themselves. And in the final chapter, Miri Bahari and I do the same with the combination problem. And there are loads of people working on the combination problem that so many people who are doing their PhDs on, on panpsychism and the combination problem. And it was a, an undergraduate dissertation topic of my own, actually, in which I suggested <laughs> that we can just have a, a fundamental law of nature that takes hold <laughs> when mm. the properties come together brain-wise. All of a sudden, this law takes hold and we have a unified <laughs> consciousness, which is... A little more exciting who... than complexity, I suppose, at least. <laughs> Well, I think um, someone like uh, Brian Cox, the popular uh, physicist in the UK, goes around saying that sort of stuff seriously. But I've, oh, I've no. realized that it's essentially, um, essentially just like pulling a rabbit out of a hat. It's it's a bit of a magic trick, and I, I don't I don't think we should follow that view. Maybe something like integrated information theory might help you with some something along these lines. And well, uh, I noticed you said materialist panpsychism there. Yeah. You have a chapter on on. Um, idealist panpsychism the last chapter that you co-authored um do you think that that somehow avoids this problem more effectively than the materialist version well sh- again i will say just although i mentioned it earlier on that it's yeah. uh, me and mary got on really well and she asked me if i wanted to co-author it with her and so i'd love to and we had great fun putting it together and, and but it could have been <laughs> any like topic right I see. Um, so you're, you're putting all the responsibility on her who's gonna <laughs> yeah. put her squarely under the bus on this one no I, i'm putting all the responsibility because her ideas are, are really <laughs> okay. compelling and okay. persuasive and, and very very few of them are mine just the bad adam sandler jokes and my responsibility um no i think perhaps it does i'm a in all honesty i am deeply sympathetic to like uh, schopenhauer's view of of what the world is is like fundamentally, and the, what the fabric of reality is like, and uh, Bernardo Castrop's book on decoding Schopenhauer's metaphysics was really influential for me. I I, I think he, um, broadly speaking, he gives us one of the most 
persuasive and elegant theories of of how consciousness fits into our understanding of the world and that view is essentially something like follows that all the chapters in the book up to the final chapter they follow a cartesian view in which they say like descartes that the world is made up of physical stuff and how does this non-physical consciousness fit into that picture oh it looks like we've got a problem the mind body problem there's a big chasm between what we think the world's like and actually what it's like for us on the inside mm-hmm. and the idealist following someone like Berkeley or um, the Hindu mystics or Schopenhauer or Miriel Bahari more contemporarily says that, well, I'll take it from Schopenhauer's perspective, something which isn't in the book. Schopenhauer looks at the world and thinks, oh, I wonder what the inner nature of all that physical stuff is. I'm a physical thing in the world and the inner nature of me is consciousness. Mm-hmm. So it must let's let's color in the void in that same bright and beautiful color, and that's what the world is made up of. And so Miri and I do, do a, a similar thing in that chapter, and we say, right, there isn't actually anything such as physical stuff in the world. Like physical stuff is you know, maybe oh, Keith Frankish says uh, that Miri thinks it's an illusion, right? Mm-hmm. So there's no such thing as physical brains; it's just ideas of brains there's no physical <laughs> stuff it's just mind stuff right. which sounds which sounds a little bit crazy out loud and perhaps one of the biggest drawbacks of the theory is that it sounds counterintuitive to how we understand the world but to... not, not really a, a, a problem in this area right given it's rough <laughs> yeah. against illusionism so um well let me ask you a problem on that view then the one that concerns me most as a dummy thick a- uh, ethicist is you know, we've just talked a lot about how consciousness, you know, so much of ethics hinges on what is conscious and what is not conscious. And now we're saying the whole universe is conscious. Uh, does that mean that we then have a moral obligation to the whole universe? Does that mean that, like, I shouldn't go around smashing electrons and super colliders? Because, as I mean, like, as far as I know, their consciousness could be more robust than we could possibly imagine. And, like, mm. if, we re- if we recognize that we don't know what their consciousness is like and that it is different from our own can we reasonably say it's okay? You know, like similarly, you know, like obviously we already buy the idea that animals are conscious and that we should treat them ethically as a result. Right. So how do we not inevitably expand this out to ecosystems, to electrons, Mm. to all these sorts of things? So, okay. Big question, isn't it? Uh, One of uh, the, (laughs) just uh, wrap it up real quick here. It's no big deal. (laughs) If you could just, if you could just answer that question, (laughs) probably Jack, then then we can, we can call it there. So um, Simon Halewood, who works here at the university of Liverpool is doing some great work on whether or not ecosystems and things like that have agency or have interests, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And again, Mm -hmm. this is um, something which perhaps I can't speak on with great authority, but what I can say is that for the idealists and the view that me and Miri put forward in the final chapter, the world is made up of just three types of things. We've got perspectives or what we might call minds. We've got ideas and then we've got consciousness. So consciousness is the thing that makes up the world at the rock bottom. It's just this big perspectiveless conscious mind with no concepts or sensory information as a part of that. And then mm-hmm. built on this perspectiveless consciousness is our individual perspectives, yours and mine, and the things that those perspectives have within themselves, like within their minds, the ideas that they can perceive. So the question is, rather than the combination problem, how do lots of little bits of consciousness come together to form a unified mind? The question is now, how do we get perspectives, individual perspectives from a perspectiveless 
mm-hmm. sea or ocean of consciousness. And so I think it avoids the the combination problem in a sense. And I think we just need to think about the different type of consciousness that we're talking about. It's, again, to put it in the context of someone like Schopenhauer, we've got this big ocean of consciousness, which he calls the will. And the will is blindly, keyword, blindly striving. And I think for Schopenhauer, following someone like Kastrup says that it's blindly striving to see itself. So when you get things within this world of consciousness that can hold within themselves concepts and and sense the world and and look at the will itself, then uh, it's it's achieving its end perhaps. Uh, But these perspectives come from this perspectiveless place. So I don't think it raises the same types of questions. Interesting. I might have to push you on that a little bit after uh, do a little in the bonus content stuff. But um, I know we're coming short here and I wanted to say, um, you know, obviously people should check out the book. Are there like one or two of the many really good resources that you recommend throughout the book that for you personally were really deeply impactful on your sort of journey through this? Mm, Okay, good. I think personally, having uh, studied and under Goff as an undergraduate and with a bit in my, my masters and stuff too. Obviously his work's been uh, really influential just from that perspective. So uh, picking up Galileo's error, if you haven't already, it's an absolutely brilliant book. I think he, he nails that accessibility and, um, and conveying his ideas in a way that if you haven't done any philosophy of mind before, you can pick it up. And if, again, if you're really interested in it already, then there's lots of content there for you to get you, get your mind and teeth into. Outside of that, yeah, I suppose because because uh, Goff uh, taught me a bit, and then uh, he was the student of Strawson. So again, I'm going to say Strawson here with perhaps mm-hmm. uh, things that bother me. Uh, is, is great book, and the book was originally supposed to such a good philosophy name. <laughs> yeah, we 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 asked him when we went to his house to do an interview with him, and I said at the end of the interview, like. Uh, he and he's he's really nice at uh, straws and he he got, comes to the pub with us he sends us photographs when he's on in america with uh, his wife michelle montague who contributes to the book as well and uh-huh. we're around there and i said like do you mind if we call the book things that bother us uh, like and we'll do like one on conscious <laughs> stuff he's like yeah you're more than welcome to but the um the, the publisher <laughs> didn't think that was a great idea so we've uh we went with perhaps the more uh the, the less comical but uh-huh. um, um, more uh, marketable talking about philosophy. Uh, so things go to talkingaboutphilosophy.com like... to pick up the book. Yeah, Things That Bother Me sounds like a um, like a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy joke, like the third book yeah. in the series kind of question. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, yeah, those are great suggestions. I really appreciate it. Unfortunately, this means now we're at the point where I have to torture you. So this is the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. For folks who are not familiar, I'm going to give you a list of things. You are going to tell me, are these things real or not real? Those are your only options. You don't get to hedge. You don't get to define what the word real means. Do you understand the rules? Yeah, that sounds good. This is... uh... This must be how all the guests of the Pantsycast feel when we give them a random quiz at the end of the end of the show. I, I now feel for each and every one of them simultaneously. No, I'm, I'm ready, Aaron. Not yet, you don't. Um, so, first of all, let me ask, just to prime because it's a philosophy show, is yeah. anything real? Yes. Okay, great. So let's find out what is real. So, the external world, real or not real? Real. Colors, real or not real? 
Real. Phenomenal consciousness? Real or not real? That's <laughs> 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 <are> so sly. <laughs> Um, I, I, I think go back to the rest of the interview, but for I'll just say real for now. Mm-hmm. Free will, mm, not real. Selves or persons, real. Genders, real. Races, mm, oh, as, um, I. Not as we typically think of them, but real in 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 a sense. Which we real, can't. okay, real species. Real morality. Real rights. Real knowledge. Real gods. R- plural, um, including or alternative God, God or con- gods. Excuse me, God or gods. Does this include alternative concepts of God as well? Whatever your particular definition is in this context, <laughs> right. yes. Real. Okay. Society. Real. Money. Real. Numbers. Real. Fictional characters. Yeah, real. Okay. Mm, holes like a hole in the ground. <laughs> like a hole. Real. Okay. Chairs. Real. Sandwiches. Real. Science. Real. Natural laws. Real. Beauty. Real. Love. Not real. Causality. (laughs) Real. And finally, time. Real. All right. You survived. Easy, Aaron. That was good to this for well. Oh, excuse me. I apologize. A hundred percent? What? Yeah, you did pretty good. You did pretty good. You did all right. Did I get any wrong? Um, I, I'm very curious to hear about beauty versus love. That's an unusual split for people to <laughs> go one a, way on one, not the other. It's um, just dreadful person experience. <laughs> <laughs> I see. So our, our, our um, bonus content is going to be talking about some, <laughs> some be bad relationships. Depressing. <laughs> we'll be embracing the void. Uh, that's funny. All right. Well, Jack, I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, and thank you for sticking around a little bit for a little bit of bonus. Well, I think we're going to call VIP content, Void Important cool. Persons. Um, so before we jump over to that, do you want to let um, normal folks know where they can find your stuff one more time? Go to talkingaboutphilosophy.com to pick up a copy of Philosophers on Consciousness. It's really, 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 really good. <laughs> If you don't like reading and you want to hear the ideas, then go to the Pan Sidecast instead. Yeah. Twitter handles? Uh, at the Pan Sidecast. And don't follow me because I'm not that interesting. Because <laughs> you don't do the Twitter. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks very much. And thanks, everybody, for listening. And you know, if you enjoyed it you want to hear a little bit more, stick around afterwards. Uh, come join us on Patreon. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks again to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Thanks to several new patrons, Person42, Charles Boyd, Bob Gower, and Joshua McMongol. Uh, I has. I apologize. And as always, I'd like to thank our top-tier patrons, our Archon-level patrons, Lawrence Shielding. You think social media is toxic? You should try 150 nanograms of botulinum. Uh, dude, fix the vote. 
any election lawyers want to pioneer a case on the California Fair Maps Act, Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman and Chad T. And all the thanks to our top-tier Archduke-level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Little Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space. And while you're at it, check out our wonderful editor's show, Louisa Lyons' Filmed Live Musicals podcast. Leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can also follow me on Twitter at ETVPod or email me at voidpod at gmail.com. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus VIP content. Most of all, no matter your consciousness, no matter what's inside your mind, you are the void and the void is you. Mm-hmm.